0: From downtown San Francisco, you're listening to LexBlab, a production of UC Hastings' Center on Legal Technology and Innovation, LexLab. I'm Drew Amerson, the director of LexLab. And this week, we'll be sharing a panel discussion from our recent Lunch and Learn session on how legal tech helped the Sierra Club to oust Scott Pruitt from the EPA, and how technology is transforming the FOIA practice. Panelists include Elena Saxonhouse, a senior attorney at the Sierra Club, and Patrick Berry, Chief Operating Officer of Logical. So I'll introduce the panelists. They're each going to give us their story. Uh, I I will engage in a little Q&A with them. I want them to ask each other questions if it pops up. And then at the end of the evening, we have a chance for everybody to join in and ask questions. And I'll bring around the mic so you can just hold up your hand and we'll bring it out to you. So let's turn to the panel now. We have Professor Dorit Rice. So Professor Rice has a degree in law and political science from the faculty of law in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So following graduation from law school, Professor Rice clerked for a year and a half in the Israeli Ministry of Justice's Department of Public Law and worked on a variety of constitutional and administrative law issues. Her research has examined accountability especially at agencies at the state, national, and international level. So some of the agencies she has studied include the EPA, the CPUC, and the FAA. As part of her research, she has looked into just how the Freedom of Information Act has increased the accountability of those agencies. Increasingly, however, her research has taken a different turn and is focused on legal issues related to vaccines, including exemption laws and tort liability related to non-vaccination. She's become a national and international figure in this field, and as such, she brings a unique perspective to our panel tonight. As a state employee, she also has had her records released through a Freedom of Information Act request, so she can talk about what that is like. Next on our panel is Elena Sachsenhaus. Elena is a senior attorney with the Sierra Club. She joined the club in 2008 as a law fellow after two years at a firm where she counseled community groups and public agencies on land use and environmental matters. She previously worked as an associate attorney in the DC office of Earth Justice and as a law clerk for the Honorable Ellen Siegel Huvel of the US District Court for the District of Columbia. She's a graduate of Stanford Law School and Yale University. Beyond using her powers of the legal kind to save the planet, Elena's favorite activities include birding, attending live music shows, and regularly, at least, planning to go to yoga class.
1: Right. This, was, this bio was written before I had a child, so <laughs> it's, it's, it needs to be updated a little. <laughs> Live music shows, not so much.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of goes out the window with toddlers. Her greatest life accomplishment, at least before the children, is cycling across the United States through many of the stunning places she's now working to protect. Next on our panel is Patrick Berry. Patrick is a Hastings alum. There you go. When he was here, this was the bookstore. Uh, He's also a graduate of Columbia University, and after his time at Hastings, he started his practice at the Venture Law Group, and this was during the dot-com bubble, I guess you can call it, in the late 90s. Boom. Boom, boom, bubble. Boom, bubble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after that, that experience set him up to work in several startups and established tech giants in Silicon Valley. But interestingly, his path took him away from the legal profession and more to the business side. Uh, by late 2017, Patrick was, as they say, living the dream. Uh, he was enjoying part-time work as a consultant to other startups and spending time with his family and pursuing hobbies, such as surfing. Uh, Then, as he put it, he fell in love, and his love was with his current company, which is called Logical. Uh, Logical enticed Patrick to give up his sabbatical to become its chief operating officer, and the San Francisco-based company, which closed a $25 million Series B earlier this year, offers a cloud-based platform that makes electronic discovery easier and more affordable, not just for law firms, but for governments, and corporations, and we'll hear more about Logical's role later this evening. Finally, we have Aaron Field, another Hastings alumnus, and Aaron is now an associate at Kannada O'Toole, Fix, and Olson. I hope I got that right. It's a mouthful, but I think it's affectionately known as COFO. Can we just go with that? Sure. All right. So he graduated from UC Hastings in 2015, and Aaron is now the co-chair of the Northern California Society of Professional Journalists Freedom of Information Committee. That's a volunteer committee of journalists and First Amendment lawyers that advocates for free speech and government transparency. He focuses his practice on First Amendment law and civil litigation. He's representing clients in First Amendment rights issues, including libel cases, He also has substantial experience using California's anti slap statute to quickly defeat meritless claims. And he also, of course, represents clients in efforts to access public records and proceedings. Before joining COFO, Aaron worked as a legal intern at the First Amendment Coalition. In collaboration with COFO partner Carl Olson, Aaron worked on a recent case out of the California Supreme Court that's called City of San Jose versus Superior Court which was a landmark case interpreting the California Public Records Act. He's also worked on First Amendment cases before law school as a paralegal with a constitutional lawyer in Washington, D.C. So please give a round of applause to our panelists. And I will ask Professor Rice to give us a little overview and history Mm -hmm. of the Freedom of Information Act.
2: So I'll try to keep it short because I really want most of our time to be listening to the substantive materials by my co-panelists. The background here is that the Freedom of Information Act was enacted in 1966. It's been amended a few times, and I'll cover that as I go into the details. But in 1966, it was part of a general move to legislate towards more open government other important laws passed in the 1960s and nineteen seventy include the Federal Advisory Committee Act, the Government in the Sunshine Act. So there was a general move to try and increase transparency in government. And The Freedom of Information Act is relatively straightforward in what it tries to do. It gets a little boggy when you try to implement it. Uh, the basic idea is that government records should be public to anyone who asks for them. Uh, government, what is government records was a matter for debate, still is sometimes. Uh, One thing that has been clear since the 1990s after a congressional amendment is that it includes electronic records. And I'm mentioning that because it will become important for my co-panelists. So records should be made public to citizens upon request unless it falls into one of the exceptions to the law, which are supposed to be construed narrowly. And they include things that would be very intuitive to you, such as Trade secrets should be kept, uh, should be exempt. Classified information should be exempt. Private information, medical and personal information should be exempt. And also things that are less intuitive, such as uh, inter-agency or intra agencys memo, which is, again, a matter of debate what that means. Um, Geological geolog- information governing well, uh, concerning wells and other interesting things. Other things to keep in mind is that FOIA was aspired, at least, to have very strict deadlines, to provide the information to people quickly and uh, easily. And it didn't exactly work that way, as uh, my co-panelists can uh, speak more in detail to. Theoretically, the government is supposed to tell you whether it can comply with the request within 20 days. In practice, because of backlogs and other things, uh, it can take a long time, although delays can lead to judicial review. Uh, there have been several amendments attempting to streamline the process, but still, we have agency backlog and systems that can, and some requests can take a very long time. Another thing to keep in mind is that if FOIA today allows for certain fees with a distinction between commercial requesters, which are less relevant to us, and non-commercial requesters uh, for which the fees should cover a reasonable duplication fees. Fees can be waived, uh, but they're relatively complex rule around when and and how, and a potential debate on uh, application. Mm -hmm. Judicial review under FOIA is supposed to be more uh, plaintiff-friendly or more petitioner-friendly than regular judicial review of administrative agencies. First, the burden of proof uh, that is on the agency to show why a request should be denied. Second, the standard of review is de novo. Usually agencies' uh, decisions are reviewed on the record with more or less deference, not under FOIA. The court can re-review the decision. And finally, there are provisions to allow for costs and fees for people bringing these suits. Um, The last point I want to mention, and then I'll uh, pass it to my uh, co-panelist, is that although the uh, expectation, Two points, actually. Although the expectation was that FOIA will be mostly used by citizens or by public interest groups seeking to uh, hold government accountable and make it transparent, in practice, a lot of FOIA requests are brought by uh, business and commercial interests looking to uh, find out information about competitors. That doesn't reduce the importance of the ability of other groups to bring FOIA requests, and I think that would be our focus. But remember that in practice, we do have a lot of suits by business using the, the act. And finally, I, I wanted to mention that the expectation when FOIA was passed was that cost will be minimal. In practice, that's not quite the case. FOIA does impose a financial burden on agencies uh, that is estimated to be pretty high. Uh, and again, the reason behind it is transparency in government can help fix a lot of things, can help promote things. But one of the criticism is their cost and they can sometimes be substantial.
0: So thank you, Professor Rice. Um, Elena, let me, let me tee it up with a question for you. If, if we should have named this How to Take Down a Swamp Monster Through FOIA, uh, I think that's a story most of us want to hear here. How did your FOIA request turn into Scott Pruitt having to resign?
1: Sure. Um, so um, I guess I'll just back up a little bit just to tell, say, kind of how, how it got, how we got to the point of um, FOIA and Scott Pruitt. Um, I don't know how familiar people are. Um, but uh, so Sierra Club is um, the nation's largest grassroots environmental organization, and we have um, chapters all throughout the country. We do um, a lot of we do um, uh, strategic campaigns like our Beyond Coal campaign, which is mainly the hat that I that I wear at Sierra Club is working um, to move the country beyond fossil fuels to clean energy um, and you know, other pieces of Sierra Club's work include protecting public lands, um, you know, uh, work under the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. And all of this work was really um, threatened when um, President Trump came into office and when he appointed um, Scott Pruitt as uh, um, as EPA administrator. Um We already were very familiar with Pruitt when he was um, appointed administrator because he had sued the EPA 14 times and we were um, on the other side of that uh, helping to defend EPA rules to cut. You know toxins from coal plants, all sorts of, um, you know, pretty much any rule that was going to impose any sort of um, burden on a polluter whatsoever, Scott Pruitt would challenge. And then here he was now um, inside the agency running the show. Um, so that immediately was extremely concerning <laughs> to us. Um, not only that, but he brought with him to the agency, or quickly hired um, as he came in, um, hired a number of other um, folks who had very close ties to industry or ties to the Trump, um, ties to, uh, um, his own kind of political campaigns as attorney general of Oklahoma. Um, and so just this whole wave of new employees was coming into the agency, um, who we thought were probably there to undermine the agency's mission rather than to advance it. So, um, you know, obviously after the you know, in late 2016, 2017, everybody's kind of like in shock and flailing around and like figuring out what can we do about all these horrible things happening in the administration and at EPA. And um, one of the ideas that... um, Came out was to really bring back the kind of um, accountability and transparency work that we had done in the um, during the George W. Bush administration. We've been very involved in um, exposing um, the the um, Dick, Dick Cheney's like secret energy task force and documents involved in that. And so we wanted to kind of bring back that kind of approach and really ramp it up um, in this new era. And so um, we started filing. FOIA requests that were very broad um, and sought all the external communications of um, not only Scott Pruitt, but his administrative staff and his schedulers and um, several of his top aides. Um, those were sort of the first set that we sent in, and they were um, seeking Um, Not only email communications, but texts, phone logs. Um, I don't know if um, you remember the news about Scott Pruitt having a secret phone booth. Um, We (laughs) sought the records of his calls from the secret phone booth. Um, And... uh, eventually got them back and he had made one call. Um, <laughs> so, um, that was news. Um, but anyway, so we, um, so that, that was sort of the scope of our request, very broad and, um, EPA did not respond, did not respond. And, um, as, um, Darid had mentioned, it's, uh, the statutory deadline is 20 days. So once the 20 days is up, you can seek, um, a court to compel them to respond. So that's what we did. Um, We brought suit in the um, federal district court in DC um, on the um, set of five requests um, surrounding Pruitt and his, his aides and administrative staff and EPA agreed to um, start producing documents and they, um, and they put it in a status report and that status report was enshrined in a court order. Lucky for us, we didn't even asked for that, but the court ordered them to start producing documents on this schedule. Um, And I think EPA had not really figured out how many documents um, (laughs) there were going to be when they agreed to that schedule. And so um, as of about April, um, so it was April... 2018, we sued um, towards the end of 2017, and then um, starting in the spring of 2018, we started to get thousands and thousands of documents back um, from um, from these requests from EPA, and um, and it turned out there was a lot of really newsworthy information in these documents, Um, and we you know we can talk more about kind of how we used logical, but we, you know, were reviewing these documents in Logical. We had a huge team of people um, kind of rapidly reviewing these to, to locate newsworthy things, get them out to reporters, and um, worked very closely with our communications team, our, our press shop, to, um, um, you know, find what was noteworthy. Lawyers aren't necessarily so good at, you know, knowing what is going to be kind of flashy in the media, but we have communications staff, and, and they, you know, could help with that. Um, and so we had um, a a bunch of people reviewing these documents, and um, uh, and and then our press people working with reporters to to get them the documents, and then the reporters would kind of come back to us. So oh, we found this. Is there anything more about this that you've seen? Um, and so there was this really great back and forth between the journalists and um, Sierra Club, and it spawned, you know, just dozens of news articles about what was going on behind the scenes at Scott Pruitt's EPA, both in terms of um, kind of the special access being granted to like Republican donors and all of these industry executives and um, the secretive way that Pruitt comported himself with the press. And like every time he would go, like if he was going to a panel like this, he would have had Drew give made sure that Drew gave his staff all the questions in advance, he would cross off questions he didn't want, you know, so all this kind of inf- interesting information was coming out through these documents. Um, and, and then so in addition to the kind of the industry coziness and kind of the, the secrecy, there was also a lot of um, kind of the most juicy information and kind of the, the things that people remember are these things about, you um, just kind of weird misuses of the office. Like, um, you know, he bought, he spent thousands of dollars on fountain pens. And he, um, uh, I mean, the big one, the really big discovery that came from our documents, because it's potentially a criminal violation, is that he was, um, he had his aide Called Chick-fil-A or get in touch with Chick-fil-A to see if they could, like, help with a business opportunity for his wife. Um, So that was, you know, and the Washington Post did a big story about that, and then people were calling for investigations. And so this FOIA request just, like, way, you know, the the results of it were, I think, far bigger than we even anticipated. And so um, these documents were coming out, these stories were coming out, you know, in quick succession throughout the summer. And um, he resigned on July fifth. And now we were not the only ones doing FOIAs, we were not the only ones um, doing investigation, the House Oversight Committee was also um, interviewing people. um, And there had been you know, a lot of information that came out before we even started doing these requests. But the documents that we got really fleshed out and gave more color to everything that kind of was already suspected to being happen, um, to, uh, that people suspected was happening at the agency. And so, um, so we've gotten a lot of credit for playing a role in, in um, Pruitt's demise. So, uh, hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, So I'm curious, can you give us a sense of the scope of the production? How big was this?
1: Yeah, so in total, um, it was over 65,000 pages. Um, Most of the, and it was a lot of documents because most of the documents were quite short, like less than five or 10 pages. They're mostly email. So yeah, so most of what we were looking at was email um, records and calendars, Um, So they have, you know, like their outlook calendar and it would say who they're meeting with and when, and it might have an agenda or something like that.
0: Yeah. And you talked about having a team. How big was the team and how did they collaborate to get this done?
1: Yeah. So, um, so we had two attorneys who were litigating the case. I was sort of behind the scenes supervising. And then, um, we had a paralegal who really managed all the documents and, um, and kind of, um, parceled them out to be reviewed through logical, um, with a team of, um, summer interns and legal assistants. And I mean, I think when we, you know, were getting these big, it was sort of like, you know, you'd have this rush and then there'd be a lull while you're waiting for the next production. But when we were doing the kind of rapid response work, there might be, you know, eight people reviewing documents at the same time. Um, and then of course the communications staff, we had one, you know, point person there. Um, but yeah, so it was a big team.
0: So, so what was it like, say you found the Chick-fil-A email, did somebody stand up or slack everybody and like, you won't believe this? Or did it take the communications person to be like, this is a big deal?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it was, it, some of it was pretty obvious on its face that like, this is yeah, and so we were using this feature in logical where you can um, kind of at somebody and you know while you're looking at the document and it sends them an email and it links them to the document so it made it very easy to you know quickly say hmm you know this one might be a good one <laughs> to, to look to look more closely at and then like our press guy would say yeah it is I'm gonna go call the New York Times you know or whatever
0: <laughs> um, and this might be putting you on the spot a bit but you you started by talking about the Sierra Club was using FOIA during the GW Bush administration. Uh, and I think you probably started there towards the end of that. Very tail end, yeah. Did you do any of that FOIA work at that time?
1: No. Before um, last year, I had worked on one FOIA case. So it was not my area of expertise or you know, anything that I planned on devoting half my time to like I do now, <laughs> but I enjoy it.
0: Yeah. How has, has, is the FOIA practice continuing? Are you still submitting requests to the EPA? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, we are very busy. Um, we had parallel requests for the department of interior, um, with secretary Zinke, who is also extremely ethically challenged and, um, <laughs> some of his staff and, um, and then, uh, you know, Pruitt's gone, but still many of the people that we're concerned about at EPA are still there, including the acting administrator who was a former coal lobbyist. So we are full-on litigating a bunch of other FOIA requests right now. And um, it's been slower to get a response, but we will be getting I mean, we've already started getting zinky documents, and we're going to get more from EPA.
0: Um, are you seeing more fantastic emails coming out, more revelations? Are... The EPA folks now being more guarded is Zinke playing it closer to his vest?
1: Um, You know the the productions that we've gotten um, from Interior have been so much slower um, that there just hasn't been the volume that we had um, with those previous requests. But um, yeah, I would keep your eye out for some news articles about Zinke. (laughs) Fantastic!
0: Um, Great. Let's let's turn to Patrick for a bit, and I'm hoping Patrick, you can. Share with us uh, how Logical's platform really helped sure. this year club here.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 ama- I know this story. I don't know all the details, but uh, I just joined Logical about a year ago, um, after a long time not working in the law. And I remember in this building taking environmental law and. Being inspired by it, and being inspired by the you know the idea behind the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and and you know really an important time in our country's history, it's laying the groundwork for a lot of the stuff. Not to mention Freedom of Information Act, and uh, being inspired by that. I didn't end up going into environmental law, but when I came back to um, to follow this passion project and, and fell in love with logical, I. If one of the things that caught my attention was the fact the company uh, supported the Sierra Club, Earth Justice, and another important organization, the Southern Environmental Law Center, uh, with our product. And, um, w- and I got an opportunity to drill down deeply into what is happening with these organizations and how we can support them. And that's one of the critical factors that inspired me to come back to work at this company. Um, in a nutshell, uh, Logical is a cloud-based platform that speeds uh, the process of understanding what's in, the do- in documents and it, uh, uh, and reduces the mean time to transparency for, uh, you know, for very large data sets, uh, specifically in the context of litigation uh, investigations and disputes where we have discovery or similar r- open records Rules that uh, enable uh, litigants uh, or private citizens or others to to get access to documents, and um, the reason it exists is uh, um, that data, the creation of data, is uh, exploding at a you know exponential rate. As we all we all know, we all experience you know the data that's being created in this room right now is many organi many orders of magnitude greater than the data that was created. Uh, in probably an entire year at Hastings when I was a student. And so uh, that creates huge challenges in um, many fields. But, uh, you know, we talk about big data and everything, but creates huge challenges in many fields, including in law and in government. Uh, And uh, Logical is built in order to facilitate uh, the penetration of those deep data sets in a way that would allow us to, get the work done that we need to get done. And in the case of the Sierra Club, it's, you know, it's work that, you know, we're very supportive of and we think is, um, is really worthwhile. And so it's gratifying to be able to get to, you know, hear these stories. Um, we're used in a number of other contexts, but it, uh, it the technology, um, penetrates the data, it, it, uh, structures it, it indexes, it processes many diverse data types, file types, emails, and calendar documents of all sorts, um, you know, images of computers and cell phones and um, uh, construction documents, any, any kind of file you can imagine. Applies some technology to it, processes it and structures the data so it makes it, it indexes it so it's searchable and actionable uh, and then allows uh, workers to collaborate by at mentioning things, for mm-hmm. example, or applying notes and redactions and uh, facilitating uh, production of documents or data sets to others. That's the basic uh, function of logical. And it's used by uh, nonprofits, but, but uh, government agencies and governments, you know, the city of New York, the city of Chicago, city of Boston, city of San Jose, uh, the city attorney in Oakland all use our product and, uh, and many you know universities and other big public institutions in part uh, to help uh, respond to FOIA uh, because that's a, that's a big challenge but also uh, corporations and uh, private individuals and many, many law firms.
0: Yeah, so I guess I wanted to come back to the question of nonprofits and and governments using this. Dorit mentioned that FOIA wasn't intended to be onerous. It wasn't supposed to put this huge burden on government. Um, But now you have the situation where all these cities are using your product, I presume because it's making it more efficient and easier. How, as a company... How did you build those relationships, both to, to nonprofits and to governments to use your work?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, it is onerous. I, I saw something recently, like 40% of all FOIA requests are commercial requests. And the, the number of requests is increasing dramatically, especially in the, since the Trump administration, the FOIA has you know, exploded, the use of FOIA has exploded. And many of the uh, entities being requested uh, are understaffed. And under the staff is underqualified to deal with the complexity of digital records and, you know, relevance and those sorts of things. Uh, and so we respond to a lot of requests from, um, in, the, in the case of nonprofits and governments, that come to us. We have a website. And we, don't go, we generally don't go looking for governments because they're really hard to sell to. And we do have to sell our product to, to keep the lights on. So it's really hard to sell to governments. So generally, with governments and with universities, we have a lot of uh, universities who are pro- use our product. Uh, we, are, we just generally respond to inbound requests from things that they've seen or read online, and, and we take care of them. So that's the primary way we we will go seek uh, other you know law firms and corporations um, you know because they're it's a little easier for us to to sell our product to, but in the case of public uh, entities it's it's challenging, so we tend to have to be reactive
0: and it seems that this is kind of an interesting niche the the public records requests uh, did logical develop its product for this specifically or it was more of a litigation discovery platform that then was yeah. Into this.
3: Yeah. Uh, it was a it was a discovery platform for litigation. It started out that way for big litigation, where document management, document and yeah, discovery, uh, you know, records is, uh, is a huge industry, ten billion dollar industry. So it uh, the main line of, of the business is in support of that. Uh, but FOIA has become a real area of interest. In fact, today we launched a new feature that um, is, we call a PDF splitter allows uh, a a FOIA requester <laughs> like the Sierra Club or a journalist like Eric Lipton at the New York Times who uses our product to uh, very quickly get through extremely large documents. A 10,000-page PDF with single bundle of many, many documents that's been lumped together as a PDF file uh, is a difficult thing to get through with technology, and we structure it and allow it to get uh, processed really quickly, uh, and a uh, 100,000-page documents, not unheard of, this this new feature is specifically designed for the FOIA use case uh, and for journalists uh, in particular. It was the that's what prompted it. In this case in particular, the Pruitt example is what prompted us to develop this because uh, Eric Lipton at, at the New York Times was having trouble getting through all the Pruitt stuff, and so we we developed a way for it to be processed faster.
1: Yeah, I would just add that. Um, so when EPA originally. Gave us the documents. They were in these ten thousand, you know, page PDFs, which is much harder to get through than than the you know when it's broken up by chunk. So that's a, a really important tool. Yeah,
3: and and because d- there is so much data, and you you said you you know you had some very broad requests. Uh, it's a common tactic in litigation if your defendant, as in the, in the EPA in this case, is effectively like a defendant, it, you bomb your plaintiff with as much data as possible so that they are befuddled and they can't get through it and they can't handle it in any reasonable time frame. And if, you're, if the plaintiff, in this case, is the Sierra Club or the New York Times which, or Washington Post, which ends up writing a story that ultimately is what dethrones Pruitt. Mm-hmm. It's a good strategy for your EPA to bomb them with as much material as possible, because there's no way a, a journalist can write a story in a timely fashion. So we have to fight back with technology, and so we, we apply our technology to allow uh, you know really a non-technical user to get through that data quickly and get to the, ins- the key insights.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I'm also wondering if you can come back and put yourself in the shoes of the EPA. So City of San Jose uses your product. The EPA is trying to respond to this, and it's easy to say, oh, they're throwing this document dump because they don't want you to find what's in there. But I'm guessing they also don't have a lot of tools at their disposal to make this nice and easy.
3: Yeah, Uh, we just uh, last week, we onboarded uh, Colorado State onto our platform, and this is a... Colorado State is part of the University of Colorado uh the Colorado State school system it's a subject to FOIA and the nicest group of people you ever met and not a one of them is (laughs) is buying thousand dollar pens or building secret phone boxes or trying to buy a Chick-fil-A they're just trying to get be responsive within the statutory deadline and it may be less than 20 days and that's just a huge burden and so we allow you know a lot of the time there the the problem is how do I look through all these documents and exclude the documents? As the professor points out, there are a number of exclusions. Their goal is just simply, uh, uh, you know, accumulate the the relevant documents, exclude the things that we cannot release, confidential or personally identifiable information, and then package it and produce it in a way that is cost effective. And so there are lots of challenges around that as well. And I'd say by and large, that's that's the biggest use case that we're supporting, which is just helping workers respond in a timely and legal fashion to FOIA requests.
0: Great. Uh, let's move down to Aaron now. Aaron, I know that you've worked quite a bit with the California Public Records Act, and I'd like to hear about your experience, especially your work on the City of San Jose case.
4: Sure, um, I mean, I, I worked on the City of San Jose case as a law student. My name is not on the case. I worked there uh, as an intern at FAC and uh, law clerk for uh, one of the partners at my law firm today. Um, it's a it's a fascinating case so the the california public records act is similar to foia in some ways uh... there are old california court of appeal cases that say that the two should be read similarly because the california public records act is in some respects modeled on foia but in california we have also a lot of additional tools in the toolbox uh, that we can use to obtain access so the california constitution um, requires that any statute uh, that provides access be construed broadly in favor of access and that any statute uh, be construed narrowly to the extent that it limits access. And it recognizes that access to the writings of public officials is uh, a right. Uh, essentially, it's a constitutional right in California. Um, so there's that kind of interpretive veneer and overlay that that you see in every one of these cases. Um, the City of San Jose case uh, is—it w- was at the time a resolution to an issue that had been percolating in California courts for a very long time. Uh, the question that it answered was, are writings that relate to public business but that are stored on the private electronic accounts and devices of public officials subject to disclosure under the Public Records Act at the request of someone who submits a Public Records Act request? Um, The Supreme Court answered the question in the affirmative. It said that, yes, they are, um, and I think it had very good reason to do so. Um, Carl worked uh, on um, representing the news media in friend-of-the-court briefing in the Court of Appeal uh, and in the California Supreme Court in that case, and I had the chance to help him with that. Essentially, what the news media argued was, uh, in addition to citing a long line of precedent that we believed supported our position and a number of um, article examples of situations in which uh, people were potentially using personal accounts and devices to evade disclosure. Uh, we also underscored that if you could evade disclosure under the Public Records Act by simply using a personal account or device that would totally undermine and defeat the purpose that the Public Records Act is supposed to serve, which is providing us the people with a way to with the California as the California Supreme Court says, verify accountability. Um, We need to know what public officials are up to, um, and we need to be able to judge them based on what they do and not based on what they say, and that's what the Public Records Act allows. So the City of San Jose case, by answering the question presented in the way that it did, preserved our right to do that. I think it was a very important case.
0: Um, Yeah, I I think it is a very important case, and as someone who works at Hastings, it's made me stop and think about everything that I write to my friends Um, And I actually wanted to come back to you, Dorit, because as someone who has seen your emails out there released into the world, um, what was that like
2: for you? So I'm not talking about as a a professor of law now. Um, One of the things I do is uh, I write and I advocate about vaccine issues. And I've been involved in the passage of a law in California, SB 277, that removed the personal belief exemption to uh, school immunization mandates. Naturally, anti-vaccine people are not happy with it. Uh, and uh, the request in question came up after, uh, I went to hear one of the cases against SB277. I've been writing about the, the, those cases and looking at it. Uh, and I met uh, an anti-vaccine person while waiting in line and he said, I have questions about vaccine. And I said, you can, you're welcome to email me. Uh, I'll try to answer them. So we corresponded for a while. Uh, the correspondence became too lengthy He apparently had more time than I did (laughs) because he wrote at length and asked things. And at some point I said, I'm sorry, I I don't have the time to answer your personal uh, science questions. And he did not like that. And I think in part because of his anger over that, um, he filed a a public records request that asked for three things. And I'll explain why he asked for them in a moment. One, he asked for my Otho office in Hastings. Uh, every employee in Hastings, Steins and Oath to uh, follow the laws of California, etc. Secondly, he asked for any funding I got from the school to go to conferences and uh, um, hearings related to vaccine issues. Third, he asked for my correspondence with a vaccine researcher, Dr. Paul Offit, um, um, which goes back to 2013 when I started being interested in, in that issue. So he asked for the oath of office because he thinks that SB 277 was unconstitutional and every state official that participated in it was violating their laws of office. So he thought he could use that to try and get some criminal charge against me, which uh, people who understand the law realize is not quite the way it works. Supporting a law, even so a law that someone thinks is unconstitutional is not a criminal act. Mm-hmm. Um, he asked for the um, uh, funding because he wanted to say, UC Hastings supports her in this criminal endeavor. Um, I have no problem with him having those um, materials. The problem is going to run to with the funding is that I'm horrible at uh, filing expenses with my school. Uh, <laughs> so he's not going to get everything that I did because I just didn't, uh, a lot of, I, I routinely forget to file conference expenses with my school. So it's not going to cover all the conferences I went to. Never mind. Uh, My concern was about the correspondence with Dr. Paul Offit. And that's because uh, while I didn't know Dr. Offit before I got into vaccine issues, in the years since, he's kind of become a a personal friend. And I did what state employees shouldn't do, which is use my state account to ask things like, so I, I just got pregnant and I'm in the middle of this vaccine series. Should I finish it? Or things about my kids And he mentioned things about his kids. So I'm looking at this request and thinking, is someone who is officially a hater going to have a, a bunch of correspondence that include private information about my kids um, and about someone else's kids? Um, and a whole lot of other things. For example, Dr. Offit sent me a draft of his book he's writing that's not yet out. So is he going to get this draft of a book before it goes out, which could hurt uh, the book... Uh, I went to talk to our counsel and said, is th- is this- I need to know what's going on. I need to know what you need to give him and what you don't. You have to follow the law, but I need to know. Is he going to get all this information about our kids? And she said, sit down, breathe. <laughs> there are exceptions to the law, and they do include privacy. Information about your kids' medical issues are probably things we do not have to give him." Um, she went in detail over the information and they ended up giving him a very small part of her correspondence in part because apparently universities in California, and maybe Aaron can speak to that, uh, read in an academic product, a scholarship exception to the Public Records Act, which means that things that are directly part of your research don't actually have to be disclosed. And that was true. So, for example, I write a question. So I'm writing this, vac- this article, law review article about vaccine. Are these three facts true? That's kind of, I mean, there's nothing underhanded there, but it's directly part of my research. Uh, so he ended up getting a small selection of my emails. And uh, nonetheless, they used my statement in them to make all ca- a, a variety of memes and things like that that they think, that they think show how horrible I am and how... Uh, evil I am at trying to get children killed by having them vaccinated. Uh, it was an interesting experience. I admit it, it felt kind of threatening until I figured out that no, they're not going to get all the information about my kids' medical issues. After that, it was okay. Never, uh, but um, it was an experience. Um, has it changed
0: your email habits?
2: Uh, I'm more thoughtful about what they put in email. And I moved all my kids' stuff to my Gmail account, which I think yeah. it doesn't, fi- doesn't run afoul of the San Jose state. My kid stuff is not part of my public job. Yeah.
0: So um, I'm curious, and this maybe is for Aaron or Elena. So when you push back and you said, okay, there's this privacy exception,
2: mm-hmm.
0: let's say that that happens with the EPA. The EPA is like, oh, this falls under an exception. Do they have to produce any sort of log?
4: You can go ahead, please. It's yeah. different. It's, p- well, it's not necessarily. It's a little bit different under FOIA and the PRA, mm-hmm. but if you want to talk, yeah, go yeah. first. Yeah, and
1: I haven't actually been through this in litigation personally yet because I am pretty new to FOIA. But um, yes, yeah, so if they, if you challenge um, or to, to just, they have the burden of justifying their withholding. So um, they file what's called a Vaughn index, um, which um, kind of is like a privilege log, which has to you know describe why they're. Um, withholding something for personal privacy. And, you know, it's interesting that that comes up because that seems like a totally valid use of it, but um, EPA seems to be using it, at least in the documents that we've been getting back pretty broadly. Um, So it definitely may become an issue.
4: Yeah, so under the California Public Records Act, unlike under the Federal Freedom of Information Act, there's no hard requirement that the uh, respondent, um, it would be a defendant in a FOIA case, affirmatively provide such a list um, by default, but it's well established that courts have authority to order the production of such a list. It's a little bit frustrating to have to actually litigate that again and again, but it seems that that's the way that it's done. So you essentially have to ask the court to intervene and provide a list to prevent everyone from having to shadow box essentially in the litigation and then generally a list will be produced because the court recognizes generally that it's not an efficient way to litigate to not have any identifying information about the exemptions and the cited. Uh, I would being say it,
2: yeah. in this case it was pretty clear that this is not likely to get to court for what um, yeah. it was on the
1: application. Yeah, and I should clarify I was speaking to when you're already in litigation they don't mm-hmm. have to if if you I mean that's one of the you know I think difficult Things if you're somebody who doesn't have the resources to go ahead and litigate a request is that if they send if they give do provide documents eventually and you know half of it's blacked out and it has a B six for the you know the exemption that they're using on it. Um, You know, you can, as you know, you don't need a lawyer necessarily to file an administrative appeal of that. Um, You you basically write a letter to EPA saying, you know, you didn't justify this or I don't think there's under personal privacy. But, um, uh, you know, and so there is some recourse if the agency kind of doesn't give you a great explanation of why they're redacting or withholding documents. Um, uh, But then, yeah, it's much more powerful once you get to court in terms of the information that you can get from the agency to really push back on that.
4: Uh, I would just also add one interesting note about the California Public Records Act's uh, privacy, catch-all privacy Mm -hmm. exemption which is in 6255 of the government code, Um, it actually requires the court to weigh the public interest in non-disclosure against the public interest in disclosure. So the test is that the government, uh, just like in FOIA, the government has to establish uh, that an exemption that it's asserting is justified, but to to establish that section 6255's catch-all exemption applies, it has to show that the public interest in non-disclosure clearly outweighs the public interest in disclosure. Um, in practice, the court still looks by analogy to its constitutional right to privacy case law. Some of you may know California has a broad constitutional right to privacy uh, that applies in a lot of contexts, so you'll see the Hill case pop up in 6255 cases, but I've always found that formulation interesting, so.
0: Um, Aaron, another question for you. So sure. as, as we were discussing FOIA and, and your practice, I asked if you use any tools like Logical. I wanted to get a sense of what your day-to-day practice was when you're sorting through this. and. Uh, just, I'll, I'll ask you again. Do you use any tools like Logical to help with this?
4: Well, I don't. Um, I, I think, and there are maybe a few reasons for that. I mean, first, I'm an associate. I don't have the final say over anything that I use. I kind of use what uh, what my firm uses. Uh, but I would also say, I, I mean, I do have, I think what you're trying to get at is I expressed to you in our conversation some hesitations about using digital discovery software, or at least relying too much on digital discovery software in the context of FOIA litigation, at least, um, just because of the fact that you need to assess not only um, whether an exemption that's been asserted has been soundly asserted and sufficiently justified by the responding government agency, but also the adequacy of the response. So whether the response was truly complete. And that almost requires you to really understand the full scope of what's been produced so that you can confirm for yourself a negative, which is, well, something that should be here isn't. I think there probably are ways to use discovery assistance tools to assist in that process. I And I, I admit I'm not as familiar with those tools as a lot of people are. so. You could probably teach me a lot about that. I'm but, my uh, card. <laughs> but but I but I will say, you know, that, that's that was the hesitation I expressed during our conversation is that it's not only about what's there, but it's also about what's not there. And how can you ascertain what's not there without actually reviewing the materials yourself?
0: And I think that does get to a deeper hesitance that we as lawyers have when, when we feel responsible for each piece of this litigation that we're handling. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Patrick, how do you try to assuage those fears when when you go to try to sell to lawyers?
3: Yeah, I, you know lawyers uh, need to use many tools to get their job done, and the most important one is their own brain uh, and their own judgment and our Our software doesn 't is not a substitute for either of those things uh, it 's just a, um, it provides a bunch of Useful, um, you know, tools to help lawyers apply that judgment in a more efficient, effective way. So whether you know you're using search uh, or filters, or you're looking at you know document and file types, or you're looking at calendars or other things, it's it's mostly a way for you to um, move faster. Um, but in many, many cases, uh, the product is used by document reviewers paging through every single page of every single document. Uh, and that, you know, depending upon the circumstances, that may be the best way to use the product. Uh, but a lot of the time, it, you know, it it it's best used with you know Boolean searches and you know complex advanced searches to allow you to work on what's not here um, and and other complex questions. Um, but it, a lot of a lot of it is just as simple as like help me deduplicate all these emails or deduplicate all these documents that. I don't want to have to look at. I, we can automatically dedupe things now. You know, that sort of stuff is just a simple function.
4: And I should also say that I, I can see a lot of great uses for a product like that. I mean, you know, in the meet and confer process, uh, in litigation, you might... Uh, Want to discuss the legitimacy of one category of exemptions? You know, sometimes the federal government will flag the su- subsection of subdivision B that they're relying on to redact something. You know, maybe you could use software to identify all the B six redactions and then talk about all of them at once. I mean, I can so see lots of great sure. uses. For
1: yeah, it. that's exactly I was going to say. So that's exactly one of the um, I think most useful things. Well, there have been a lot of um, ways that we've used it that, that have been helpful, but um, you know. That's exactly what we did is when, as people were reviewing, doing this, the review for kind of like juicy documents, we were, I also asked people to go in and tag what, um, what redactions they were claiming on any document. And then now we're at the point in the litigation where we've gotten all the documents and we're fighting over those like blacked out, you know, pieces. And, you know, I basically just asked our paralegal to do a report from logical that, um, and you can pick which fields. So now I have a spreadsheet that has, you know, all of the, all of the documents that were redacted, w- you know, any notes that were on them, the, you know, might have the subject line, I can't remember, but, um, you know, kind of the relevant information that allows me to go down a spreadsheet mm-hmm. and say, okay, we care about this, we don't care about this, you know, and so you can really cull it down to figure out what is the actual list of documents that you need to talk to the agency about and, and, and that you may end up fighting over.
3: Yeah, again, it's really just trying to, in the world of giant data, how do we cull down to the, the relevant stuff and then apply our judgment in a you know focused way?
2: I expect that would be especially crucial for a nonprofit, which always has limited resources and yes. too much to do. Yeah,
3: governments too. Yeah. Government too, that's yeah. right. You've been listening
0: to LexBlab, recorded live during our bi weekly lunch and learn sessions at the LexLab Legal Tech Innovation Center. LexLab is UC Hastings' hub for legal technology in San Francisco, featuring a resident startup accelerator, regular panel discussions, and legal resources for entrepreneurs. To learn more about LexLab, or to attend a Lunch and Learn session in person, visit us online at LexLab.uchastings.edu. Great, well I want to start to invite you all if you have questions, I'll come out there.
5: So as a personal note, my, after I left grad school, I went to the CIA for six years. And when I told them I was leaving in August and was leaving in October, they said, well, we're not going to let you learn anything new. You're going to work on FOIA stuff for two months. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is, is, so Sierra Club has an interest in sort of anything that can be discovered in this. And you don't have the interest that, in, say if you were Pepsi Cola and you subpoenaed, or you, you, you FOIAed some stuff and maybe it was going to give you a business edge. You don't care if anything might be discovered in that set of things. Did you ever consider putting it out on the Internet and saying, everybody, come at it? You know, here's 200,000 documents where you get people who say, hey, I'm, I'm a former EPA worker, and I read that, and I know this is wrong, and here's why.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, we um, – so we did end up putting everything out there for reporters to dig through. I actually don't know whether it's on a public website or not, but that's a good point. I mean, we have certainly are intent to make it, um, you know, available to anybody who's interested. And yeah, I think crowdsourcing is a great idea. It is available publicly on FOIA online, actually, now that I, so there's a, there's a government website called FOIA online, not all agencies use it, but um, EPA does. And so um, anybody can, you know, look for our um, FOIA requests by number, and then all the responses would be there. They would not be packaged as nicely as and searchable as they are, you know, in the format that we have. So that was, you know, one service we were providing was to be able to provide them to people in a searchable format. But, um, but yeah, and I think, you know, the other... Um, there, is, there have been a lot of groups that have been doing this FOIA work on um, environmental agencies, and um, there is interest in having sort of a centralized repository for all that, and I think that would be great, and it's just a matter of somebody coordinating it, getting the technical help to do it, um, and all of that, but I think, yeah, it's a, it's a great idea.
0: Kind of to go further on your question, So with all of the other groups submitting FOIA requests, did you collaborate with them to make sure that there wasn't any overlap uh, among the environmental groups?
1: Yeah, we do actually um, compare notes. And um, we, um, so Sierra Club actually hosts a um, a FOIA tracker, um, which we um, ask other groups to, to contribute to and for exactly that purpose to make sure we're not duplicating work or if um, you can see, you know, when somebody else has gotten a response on something that you're interested in. So, yeah, that's definitely one of the resources that we've developed as this work has ramped up.
0: More questions?
1: Um, This question's for Patrick. Where do you think that legal
2: tech can do more for access to justice, especially in the government space?
3: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we see legal tech as really an extension of uh, legal minds and legal workers, and so we we follow the lead of the the human beings who are um, involved in justice and. Um, we, as a result, we get access to incredible stories, like incredible stories of heroes who are, you know, um, you know, really redeeming, our, redeeming all of us. You know, the recent case of the um, the gymnasts at Michigan State and the uh, Gruel Law, which is a small law firm representing those gymnasts, using Logical to get, through, you know, in a very similar situation, really getting at records of a public entity that. Where a lot of bad stuff happened, and um, and so it's it's great to be you know part of that story, but we don't see you know we uh, other than giving really attractive terms to governments and uh, nonprofits, which we do, uh, and um, supporting um, you know education. Um, we uh, you know that that's what our job is, and so we, we'll go where the practitioners are. And um, and our hope is that you know lots and lots can take advantage of our our technology. the 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 great thing about software is it does allow for the leveling of the playing field. Um, you know, small small firms, um, small entities, nonprofits can you know with the power of a of software or platform like ours, and there are others. Um, they can really come up against giants, you know, white shoe law firms or huge agencies, and come out victorious, or at least have an even uh, an even shot at getting access to uh, justice. And we're just a, we're just a piece of that, um, uh, but we're always looking for new ways to help out and um, open to ideas.
2: I want to follow up on that and ask you. Th- Am I, is what you're saying that the usual situation that someone comes to you and says, I have a problem, do you have tools that can help me solve it? Or do you also create tools for problems that people haven't figured out they have yet?
3: <laughs> I think technology is always a little bit of both. Uh, for the most part, um, we're you know, we a San Francisco company. We've got about 100 people. We're down on Sutter and New Montgomery. We're a tech company, and we're trying to build something great and scale it globally. We have users in... 37 countries all over the world and supporting those uh, users in diverse situations. Um, for the most part, we have to respond to needs that, it, that we know exist uh, and or in response to the, the needs that we see out there. Uh, but sometimes we um, think of really cool stuff uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we put it out there and, and we see how uh, you know, see what happens because we think we have a, you know, a better way. Uh, but a lot of the time it's just sort of like, like this PDF splitter feature that we just launched. It's because the Sierra Club and the New York, New York Times and, and others like it and just needed the, they needed the help and we were res- rushing to respond and I think that's probably more often than not the case of how we, how we work. <clears throat> but with the software, is there a concern that the corporations and the law firms that represent those corporations would counteract the work that you do as well? Uh, well, we sell to, we sell to corporations and, and law firms. Most of our customers are mid-sized law firms or in small law firms, the vast majority of our customers. But we do have a large number of, uh, uh, of other companies. Uh, Salesforce here in San Francisco, largest employer in San Francisco, uses our product. Walmart uses our product. And uh, it's say what you will about those those companies, they're using it uh, in their day to day lives just to run a more efficient business. Or really, it's legal practitioners who are, you know, in many cases refugees from a law firm practice world and going in house for, an, an, you know, a life that's a little bit more manageable. And they just need some help doing more with less. And uh, a lot of the, you know, when you look through their lens. You know, Walmart or Salesforce, they've got an employment matter that they got to get taken care of. They got an internal investigation that they have to run and they don't want to go see their kid's soccer game, but <laughs> they can't leave the office. And so it's sort of ways to help those folks. Uh, but but the basic you know, idea is helping legal practitioners on whatever side of the issue you may find yourself on, get through that really giant data and have a little bit better of a life and get to you know reduce the, the meantime. To to knowledge, um, that's that's the basic idea.
4: Hi, thank you all for coming. Um, it seems like a data security breach of this type of platform would be devastating. Um, what are you guys doing to sort of prevent that? Yeah,
3: great question. Yeah, security's on everybody's mind. Security, privacy, uh, there's new new rules out there. There's a new regime called GDPR, which is uh, European rules around data privacy and being able to pull data back. Um, uh, security's top of mind, um, and it's top of mind for us. Uh, yes, definitely security is, is something, you know, it's critical to the operation of any cloud platform. Uh, we spend a lot of time and money on it, um, but one thing I think is pretty interesting that most people don't know is that um, law firms are really insecure places uh, and and um, so in traditional litigation where there's discovery involved the case is usually a corporation or some individual gathering up a bunch of responsive data in a discovery request and giving it to a law firm in some form. Usually it's, you know, maybe it's on a thumb drive, maybe it's in an email that they send, uh, or maybe it's on a hard drive that they mail. And those things go to a law firm, and um, the data we see is one in four law firms have been hacked. Uh, almost every law firm in the country there are, has had security breaches, and law f- lawyers are maybe not the most secure with their email. <laughs> and and, uh, and so, uh, there's security's a big risk, so actually we, we think companies like ours, cloud companies on these new cloud platforms you know, are actually a much more secure place. And so the way um, you know, the Sierra Club is using the data is they keep it in their cloud in their instance of logical and then they invite people in. And so the data never leaves. It's right there. So it's actually it's a pretty secure, much more secure way of processing what is really usually the most sensitive data the, the EPA's data was the, data, the exact data they didn't want to get out. But, uh, so usually the data that's produced is highly sensitive. Um, so the new cloud platforms are, provide a lot more controls, access controls, and cloud technologies are inherently more secure. That's not to say that we don't spend a lot of effort on two-factor authentication and you know, multi-bit encryption and all kinds of crazy stuff that I'm not enough of a technologist to be able to explain good question, though.
6: Um, what happens when a public official uses personal email or cell phones for public business?
4: Should I answer that? So, I, I mean, that's that's exactly the problem that the City of San Jose case that I spoke about earlier tried to answer. Um, it doesn't completely answer the question, so I, I guess maybe I should ask you a follow-up question. What, When you say what happens, do you mean is the material subject to disclosure? Do you mean what's the procedure for securing disclosure?
6: Um, yeah, I mean, how do you acquire that information?
4: Well, you can ask the public agency. You can send a Public Records Act request to the public agency, um, and basically the the. Public officials at the public agency, um, after communicating with the folks at the public agency, are supposed to, if you've asked them to, uh, conduct a search for responsive public records and essentially provide those responsive public records to you. The exact mechanics um, are not entirely clear from the City of San Jose decision, and it doesn't—the Supreme Court— left that open to some degree. Um, It did talk about one procedure that had been adopted by the state of Washington, uh, and it spoke about that with favor. Um, A little bit of background on the analogy to Washington's public records law. It's very, very similar to California's public records law. Um, As I researched this, I kind of looked at different public records laws all over the country, and some are much, there, there are sort of a few constellations of Formulations of the 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 meaning of public records, et cetera, Washington's is very similar to ours. Um, We're in the same constellation. So, and I, I I think the Supreme Court realized that the the solution to this proposed by the Washington. Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court here talked about, was essentially uh, these individuals doing their own search. And it, it also contemplated the possibility of individuals writing declarations uh, about mm-hmm. the searches that they conducted to the extent that that was necessary. But it, it, left, it left that open to some degree. So I actually think ex- the exact mechanics of, of how that's going to look in California is yet to be decided.
2: Can I give one example? Sure. So um, it c- came up in the science communication wor- world around someone who's controversial, and I don't want to go into that part, but there's been an um, effort by uh, anti-GMO groups to get emails of uh, Florida researchers named Kevin Folta, someone who is, again, controversial. And when, what his university did is his university, since he used his personal Gmail account on their computers, went into his Gmail account and did the search themselves in that one. But that would require that the official actually use, actually stored the password for that account on the work computer. I think there would be, you'd have to know they have the account and you'd have to get in. It's not, it, it's doable, but uh, it's not always straightforward, I think.
4: Where was that? That was uh, Florida. Florida, I, um, interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. If you look for Kevin Falter and, uh, and the uh, Freedom of Information Act, you'll probably find it.
1: Yeah, this is a big issue for, for our work because, um, I mean, in my my mind, there's no doubt that EPA staff and Interior staff are texting each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And so how do we get those text messages? We ask for them in the request, and the response is that, well, it's um, – federal policy that they're not supposed to use that for, um, communications related to official business. And if they do, they need to forward it into their, um, to the government system within 20 days, I think it is. Mm -hmm. So when we do our search for records, it will turn up if there have been any text messages, but, um, you know, that relies on everyone being diligent and honest in forwarding their stuff into the system, um, and so it's something we're really considering: is how do we get at that? Is the evidence that there have been all these ethical lapses enough to make a court say, "Okay, agency, you have to." We're not going to just take this. Policy at face value. Are are we gonna, you know, could we get a court to order the agency to actually like search people's cell phones instead of just taking their word for it that they have um, that they have forwarded things into the into the federal system? Okay. So it's a big question.
4: And just one thing to add to that is that it's, in some of these cases, you do have a right to discovery. So that's something people don't think about. I mean, public records act cases are writ proceedings, and people sometimes don't. Think that they might have the, you know they would have a right to conduct discovery, which is to say, take depositions or send interrogatories to someone. But they do, uh, and so that's one way that you can enforce this requirement that public officials disclose, uh, because you can sort of test it. You can take a deposition, maybe if, if you wish to.
3: Yeah, there is. There are uh, companies do uh, collections, categories, you know, collections in discovery where. Uh, this stuff is commonly collected by, you know, uh, private companies, and there's software and systems mm-hmm. that do automate the collection of that information, and uh, it is timely. I mean, it is, and it is also expensive, but mm-hmm. um, it it exists. Excellent.
5: Uh, so Patrick mentioned GDPR, and we will be blessed in, in about 14 months with the California Privacy Act that's supposed to be analogous to GDPR. So I, I suspect it'll be a great topic for future talk here because it's a lot like FOIA with some additional wrinkles. Like, you don't have to know who it is who's asking about your FOIA, but you absolutely have to authenticate if John Smith is asking about his records, is this the same John Smith, and do I dare give these over to John Smith? Um, my FOIA question is... Uh, Did everything you get come in in digital form? And if it didn't, what did you do with it?
1: Um, Yeah, everything we got was provided in digital form. Um, I think, you know, we had asked that we had not only – we'd asked for more than just digital records, so we'd asked for, you know, any hard copy um, correspondence that was received, but um, they provided it to us in a, you know, in a PDF format. So at least we didn't – yeah, we didn't have to deal with with that – you know, extra hurdle of scanning everything or anything like that. Yeah. Hi, just to follow up on the previous conversation. So have there been any cases in California where the courts have ordered disclosure of public officials, um, private emails or text messages that are unrelated to work or that they claim were unrelated to work?
4: Well, I think those are two different things. Um, I mean, unrelated to work or that they claim are unrelated to work. But I guess I don't I don't have an answer off the top of my head. Um, I think the, the, the cases that have required disclosure have required disclosure based on the content of the records at issue. That's what the city of San Jose case says courts are supposed to do, is look at the content of the records and not the location uh, in which the records are stored. Um the test is pretty broad. They have to relate to public business. Um, there's one case, an old case, that says, you know, maybe the shopping list phoned from home is a personal record that you might not be able to get under the Public Records Act because it doesn't relate to public business, but uh, it relates to public business is broad, uh, admittedly. And uh, it's also true that there is this constitutional broad construction requirement of the right of access. So uh, it's I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's always an issue. The, whether the record relates to public business or not, I, especially in these personal account and device cases, I think that's an issue.
6: Okay, I have a question. First of all, I love what happened here. I just think it's so exciting that you – that we would never have had that result of being able to have Scott Pruitt resign if it hadn't been for your FOIA request and your, you know, your incredible technology to do that. So that's terrific. But it it makes me think, as someone who's involved with startups all the time, there's someone out there that is inventing something that will make all of our emails, it'll be like Snapchat for emails, or, you know, there'll be nothing left. I've already heard that people are asking for discovery for Slack and for tweets, of course, and all of that. So what's going to happen when everything that we do is, is, you know, disappears in theory into the ether or have you heard of it? Any of you heard of any of that? Oh, sure.
3: Yeah. yeah? Ephemeral messaging for example, which is, uh, Slack is something that's a rising challenge. Who here uses Slack? Does anyone have to use Slack? So mm-hmm. It's the fastest growing communications product um, and software company, in uh, enterprise software company in history, according to some accounts. And it's really tough because messages come and go. And it's organized by channel and things are ephemeral. And not only is it not just uh, text, it's you know, all kinds of emojis and GIFs and all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, so it's really hard to produce um, because it's constantly changing. Uh, our product does process slack uh, and um, produce it and allows lawyers to get through it and uh, use it for discovery purposes. Um, investigations and discovery, it's used a lot in internal investigations because you might imagine there's you know harassment or malfeasance or other things that take place on what people think is this uh, message that disappears. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever really disappears. <laughs> Uh, and so we developed an extension to our product that would allow for the processing of Slack data. But uh, it's constantly changing and there, are, there will be new things. And there will constantly be, it's a, it's a constant battle. Data is exploding. And uh, so we, we just try to stay ahead of it. And I, I feel sorry for the, for the practitioners who have to deal with it. Uh, and uh, we just have to process it. You guys have to figure out what it means. Uh, but, uh, but it's an interesting challenge and it's, it's not gonna stop.
6: And, and does the language of FOIA, and I'm by no means—I don't—I've never read the statute. Does it cover all of those sort of ephemeral kinds of data? I mean, what is
2: it? What does it say about data? It's probably going to go into the question of what's a record, yeah. uh, and there's some debate about that, and it's probably going to continue to be debated. That's my guess. Yeah,
1: and I mean, we should also mention that there is a, another law that's very important for transparency and accountability. That's the Federal Records Act, which. Yes requires certain records to be kept by federal agencies so that, you know, even if there are these technologies that allow you to have them have your messages disappear, that might be a violation of the Federal Records Act. That said, there's no private right of enforcement of the Federal Records Act. So um, that's another challenge. But um, but yeah, I mean, the definition of records, record is an extremely broad and I think was updated you know, more recently, yeah. So, but, yeah, things are changing so fast it will probably need another update soon.
6: So it sounds like FOIA lawyers are not going to be put out of business from all of this.
0: (laughs) All right, so as we are closing, I actually wanted to bring it back to our panelists. So a lot of our audience here are law students, thinking about their future careers, and we have a FOIA lawyer, a California public records lawyer, we have now a technologist, someone who's been through startups, and an environmental lawyer, and I just and a professor. If if we can all, if you can share just sort of your journey and how you got to where you are, and, and any tips you have for students as they're thinking about their future careers, that'd be great. Aaron, do you want to start?
4: Uh, sure, I've appreciated the First Amendment for a long time, um, and I think what really crystallized my passion for that field was my college experience. I went to a school called St. John's College. Um, and St. John's College has what's called a great books program. So you study the great books of Western civilization in chronological order as primary sources. Uh, and you have a seminar class where you focus on history and philosophy and theology, but also a math class and a science class. And over time, um you got to see orthodoxies be destroyed by what began by you know what began as minority views, and those views kind of became the majority views over time. And that dialectical process underscored for me the importance of protecting uh, the minority view. So I liked the First Amendment for a long time, really because of that. Um, I worked for a constitutional lawyer um, as a, a paralegal and executive assistant um, in between college and law school. And he did some constitutional First Amendment work, too. I decided that the the group of people that I wanted to work with were the news media. Uh, during that time, just in reading First Amendment cases, some of the more exciting issues arose in news media cases. And I also felt that that was a mission, you know, finding the truth and telling people the truth that I could really get behind and get, it, get excited about Um, and so I got excited about that I got to law school um, at UC Hastings and I started reaching out to alumni you know basically expressing my interest in that field Uh, I started Trying to learn what the community here of First Amendment lawyers and media lawyers was like, and and who was in that community and who was doing what, it's you know it's a, I, I have huge respect for a lot of the people that I've met who were very nice and helpful to me, but I think reaching reaching out in that way was really good and trying to get to know the community was really good, um, and that also helped get me even more excited about the field, um, so. Uh, I, you know, uh, we've talked about some of my work history, but, you know, I had I was able to find opportunities to expand my knowledge of that and very uh, excited to be able to do some of that now.
0: Great. Thanks, Aaron. Patrick.
3: Um, Let's see. I I, I think a lot of people who go to law school have a lot like a passion for ideas. It's like it sounds like you do. And I, I definitely have always had I've always loved ideas. And, um, you follow, you know, if you have curiosity, you just follow where your curiosity is. And I'm law presented with, you know, me with opportunity, have lots of great ideas and learn about them. Uh, and the same thing with technology and, you know, I was always fascinated by the impact that an idea can have on society, whether it's in the form of, you know, something expressed as speech that changes, you know, the way we believe. Or the idea of, you know, I don't know, a product or something, a vision of a product that could impact uh, society the way you know, Facebook has or the iPhone or any of those things. And, um, and it's, all, it's all the same stuff for me. And so I feel very fortunate to grow up in Silicon Valley and get to pursue ideas in the form of uh, technology. And, um, uh, but going to law school is a great base for doing a lot of things. And uh, I think all of us would agree that, you know, we feel indebted to uh, our education um, for the opportunities we've been given. And I certainly, I certainly share that.
0: Great, thanks. Elena?
1: Yeah, um, I guess I had an interest in environmental issues for, you know, quite a while, I um, went on, was, Privileged enough to go on vacations to national parks when I was growing up, and it sort of I think started out as sort of a love for natural places, but then really evolved over time to, um, you know, the. Kind of public health side of it, and the fact that you know these pollution laws are saving lives, really like every day. And um, even though it's you know somewhat invisible, and um, so that piece has become really important to me as well, um, and more you know what my work focus on focuses on than the the lands piece. But um, I uh, so straight out of law school, I clerked for a federal judge in D.C., which was great. And during that time, I had um, been looking around for environmental law jobs, and I um, I got a job um, at the Ocean Conservancy, and was you know thrilled that I was going to finally become an environmental lawyer. And then, um, about a few weeks before my clerkship ended, they called me up and said, "Actually, we don't have that job anymore." That that line item was zeroed out of our budget or whatever it was. And I was like, you know, at that time, it just seemed like the worst, like the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. Cause I was like finally going to be an environmental lawyer, but um, turned out it all worked out. I was unemployed for a while because, you know, I hadn't been looking for a job. I was expecting to have, have this one. But um, so like my sort of tip and life lesson is that like, even though, networking can be sort of painful and um awkward if you have any like social anxiety or whatever. Um uh, I certainly didn't didn't, you know, really relish it, um but it turned out to be really important. Um I had made a contact when I was originally lo- looking for um that ocean conservancy job or had originally gotten that o- ocean conservancy job. Um I got to know a lawyer at Earth Justice and so when that other job fell through, he was like, well, we're doing all this mountaintop removal litigation and we could really use someone who has just come off a federal clerkship and, you know, we're, 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 in federal court. And, um, so I got, I got to jump in on that litigation sort of, they created this like temporary position for me. Um, and so that was, that was fabulous. I don't know if folks know what mountaintop removal mining is, but it's like nasty. Really just kind of the worst environmental practice in the entire, um, United States in that, you know, they're sort of chopping off the tops of mountains and dumping them in streams and sort of devastating poor communities while they're at it. So, um, with health problems and and everything. And so, um, I got to work on, um, that federal litigation for about eight months. Um, and then I came out here to work for a small firm that does um, community, a small private firm that does that, that represents community groups and public agencies, um, and I really enjoyed that work. Um, I, I enjoyed the people that I worked with and the quality of lawyering, but I found that um, I was really antsy to be back um, doing more of the kind of like strategic, I want to save the world kind of things. And so it wasn't enough for me to be representing, you know, one client with a narrow interest in a particular strip of land. Um, I really wanted to be doing more kind of national strategic work. Um, and I, um Also, kind of through networking, found out about this position that I had not seen posted anywhere at the Sierra Club. They were starting up this beyond coal campaign and needed more lawyers um, and sort of the rest is is history. I <laughs> went to Sierra Club more than ten years ago um, and um and yeah, at the time there were like 150 new proposed coal-fired power plants, and Sierra Club was planning to fight every one. Um, and so I got to do that at the beginning of my career, and there are no more new coal-fired power plants um, being proposed in the U.S. Um, and so, um, yeah, anyway, moved on from there. But
0: Great. Thank you. You won that coal fight, at least that bit. Um, Dorit, you get the last word. Any advice to aspiring folks who want to be on the receiving end of a FOIA request someday?
2: <laughs> well, I think what you're hearing it in part is uh, be flexible. You can have your goals, but be flexible. Open your eyes to what uh, can happen. Talk to people, network, and for our students in particular, be also flexible geographically. The barrier is great, but there are other great places too. Great. All right. Can you all join me in thanking them?
0: So we welcome you to stay and and do some of that networking. We'll try to make it as not awkward as possible. (laughs) Too late for that. All right. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks again to all of this week's panelists. Tune in again next week when we hear from Professor Dan Rodriguez of Northwestern Law School who will be talking about innovating legal education. To learn more about LexLab or to learn how to attend our lunch and learn sessions, visit us online at lexlab.uchastings.edu. That's l e x l a b.uchastings.edu. This show is recorded live at UC Hastings by Jake Quinton and has been edited and produced by Ben Ambrogi.